0: Hey, Welcome to the AFIKT podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. On today's episode, we feature a conversation with Dr. Lisa Urkovich. Lisa is a professor of musicology and ethnomusicology at the University of Kuwait. Her work studies the music of the Arabian Gulf. It's a really interesting topic. As a musician myself, I love speaking to Lisa about her work. Okay, hope you enjoy it. Thanks. My name is Mikey Mhenna. Nice to meet everybody. Nice to see so many people from all over the world on the call. Our special guest is Dr. Lisa Herkovich, who is a specialist in the heritage and the music of the Arabian Peninsula. She holds a position as general editor of the College Music Symposium, Journal of College Music Society, the largest worldwide consortium of college, conservatory, and university musicians and scholars. She also serves as full professor of music, musicology slash ethnomusicology at the American University of Kuwait, where she is the former founding division head dean of the arts and humanities and founding chair of the department of music and drama. Lisa, thank you so much for joining our particular conversations.
1: Thank you so much, Mikey, for inviting me and kudos to you on this project because it's really impressive. It's very nice. Thank,
0: thanks so much. We are doing it together. Um, so I like asking um, all of our guests to just get a sense. How did you find yourself interested in um the music of the Arabian Gulf?
1: Well when I was uh, a freshman in college I happened to go to college with one of the largest ethnomusicology programs around the a group of ethnomusicologists that was founded at UCLA had left there and gone to the University of Maryland Baltimore County and and since I was a a student and I wanted to keep my scholarship one of the things they said is start to play in ensembles because I was a performer I was a French horn player and so through there, I got involved with playing in different kinds of world music ensembles and taking uh, courses in Arab music. There was a famous um, uh, professor there that had specialized in North African music. And so I was first introduced to um, world music and Arab music. I ended up with a degree in Chinese music actually, my first bachelor's. Oh. degree. So I, it just kind of took off from there. And then, you know, it opened the whole world to me beyond Western music, beyond what I had learned as a, as a child. So, and I just, I just wanted to learn more and I kept keeping involved, then moved to Saudi Arabia in the 90s. Uh, I actually went with my husband while I was writing my doctoral dissertation. I went and lived in the mountains of Taif, and then just got, you know, the societies were very closed then, but I started to make friends and go to weddings and start to see this new type of music. So that between 94 and 98 was really my first initiation. I really lived in the culture and was exposed to this music on such a deep level. Did,
0: so um, your bio says that you have done two, two Fulbright, uh, Fulbright scholarships. Um, was the first one the one that brought you to Saudi or?
1: No, I just oh, went, no, no. I, I, my first Fulbright, both Fulbrights were in Kuwait because mm. Saudi wouldn't let people study. They weren't on the Fulbright for music. Back in the day, and um, and also a woman a woman want to go to Saudi Arabian city music wasn't wasn't really going to happen. It's one of the reasons I picked Kuwait because culturally Kuwait very close at least to Riyadh. We have the same tribes in Kuwait, the same uh, you know a lot of my students will go to weddings. They could go down to Riyadh to go to weddings, or vice versa. You know, people from Riyadh come up to Kuwait. So um, I wanted to study Saudi, but I couldn't get a full right to Saudi. That was in two thousand and one or two. So I ended up in Kuwait, which worked
0: out really well. Yeah. So interesting. So I, I want to just ask a, a basic question around uh, about the introduction I just made. Um, it says, you know, Lisa also serves as a full professor of musicology slash slash ethnomusicology. For those of us who are ignorant, what is the difference between musicology and ethnomusicology?
1: Well, it's changed over the years. Yeah. So musicology was, you know, this big study that came out Hundred. well, you know, the first doctorate in music was offered during the Renaissance. So people have been studying music a long time. And if you go back to ancient Greece, they used to say, you know, if you want to be a well-rounded man, you study gymnastics for the body and music for the mind. So music's been part, it's one of the seven liberal arts. It's been around forever as a serious study. Um, musicology tends to mean the study of uh, uh, music on a kind of a humanities level where there's a criticism. This is good, this is bad. Like the way we study English literature. Um, yeah. is good, Shakespeare's bad. And so we look at music compositions and we judge them on their value as a music. Ethnomusicology, especially now, it wasn't always like this. There were my old professors were like music, musicologists that study world music. But ethnomusicology now is an anthropological approach. It's a social science. So you don't go into a society and say, this is good music, this is bad music. You just kind of view it and you're a human tape recorder like an anthropologist. You, 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 and you kind of just express it and why they're doing this and so forth. A musicologist would come in and go, oh, no, 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 we've got to judge it within that system. And the problem is when the two get blurred, um, so that sometimes anthropologists, ethnomusicologists, come in and are the only people that recorded songs from a community. I, this happened. I don't want to be too specific, but this happened in the 70s. So one of my neighboring countries here, and they recorded music. And I went back to that country later, and they were, the, and they wrote a book on it called "The Music of This Country." And I went back there and hung out with the musicians, and can you believe this? Somebody pops a microphone down, and now this is the music of my country. And that was a terrible band. They, they they recorded the worst bands, and now everybody in the world thinks that terrible band, and those bad songs are the songs of my country. They wanted more criticism. They wanted a musicology applied to their culture. And pe- one, one of my colleagues even said, why can't we have a Beethoven? Why are we only approached like gender roles and ceremony? You know, we're always approached like an anthropology. Why can't we? And so when I did my research, because I'm really trained as a, I'm trained as both. My first degrees are at the but with a performance angle. And then as a historical musicologist. So when I came into this region, I thought, I'm going to take all that rigor and discipline that we learned as musicologists, where you don't leave a stone unturned, where you, you know, you're really exacting, you check all your sources and apply that to this region so that people can go, hey, I have a Beethoven too. Hey, you know, that was my goal to apply yeah musicology to a non-Western culture, because a lot of people think ethnomusicology is non-Western, but it's not. It's an anthropological approach to music.
0: That's very, very helpful. Um, so for the purposes of today's conversation, um, I wanna focus on these three projects for the most part, as well as your role at the American University of Kuwait and the way you think of yourself as an educator in this, in this region. Um, but let's start first um, talking about some of the work that you, uh, you've done focusing on the music of Kuwait. Um, there are two projects here, one is called SOT, and then the other one is called Kuwait Sea Songs of the Arabian Gulf. Um, let's talk, I guess, maybe let's stay with the biographical part a little bit. How quickly into your move to Kuwait did you decide, you know what, this is not just about going to weddings and enjoying the music. I want to actually produce academic work on, on this region.
1: Uh, well, well, immediately, I came as a Fulbright scholar. I was a professor at Boston University, and I yeah. came to as a, as a Fulbrighter, so I hit the ground. But I wanted to study Bedouin, because I wanted to study the Riyadh Yeah. But I ran into a friend and he grabbed me and he said, have you heard the great sea bands of Kuwait? And I'm like, no, and he said, you gotta come with me. And he grabbed me and took me to this band, the Hussein Sea Band. It's not, a C, when we say sea band, what it means is um, it's not, a, it's hundreds of men that get together and sing old sea songs. So it's not a band, it's people of the community or the performers. And these groups were really popular before um, oil well. Every, Pearl diving boat a merchant ship had musicians on it and the crew would sing along with the professional musicians a handful of professional musicians then when oil wealth came those uh, units died because you don't need them you don't need sea songs anymore so different people in the community decided to um, record groups of men that had burned on the boats and then they started to become identified with a diwania or a dar which is a meeting place and so they and they call themselves bands but they really aren't they weren't initially bands so we it's huge groups of men that get together every week and they sing these old traditional songs and they're dying right? there used to be i don't know probably thousands of them and now we have maybe 10 that are left in the entire radian peninsula so uh ten that had roots these old yeah. groups um so anyway toby so and I, was, I you know when you think of arab music you don't think of anything like that like big choruses, I mean, it just vibrates your whole body, you know, hundreds of men singing together, and it's beautiful, and it's, and they're mournful songs, they're sad, but they're beautiful, they're uplifting at the same time, and so, um, yeah, then I I started to, I went, and I visited this band constantly for two years, and they taught me like a child, it was so wonderful, Muhammad, had been yeah. saying, sit with me, and hand me a drum, and teach me, Piece by piece, and then they'd say, "Oh, we have happened the lunch we're on Friday. You've got to come. wrap the fish." You know, yeah. and I come. I would. I swear, I spent more time with them than my own family. So, but it was a wonderful experience, and to this day, there's. I view them as dear friends, like my brothers.
0: So, is there is there a sort of um, I, let's let's talk a little bit about the music part of it. How different is the the music, the sort of sea sea music? Uh, is that the right term? What term should I be using?
1: Yeah, these are sea. Yeah.
0: The sea songs. How how different is that music from in Kuwait versus in places like Bahrain and Qatar, um, up and down the up and down the coast?
1: They're shared traditions because there were no state lines. You know, yeah. it was a different time back in the day. Like just like the tribes, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So, so we do find the exa- same genres you'll find like Jeep or different work songs. They all have the same work song. The rhythms are similar, the tunes are similar, but they're going to be different. The Bahraini style is definitely different than the Kuwaiti. Um, some people say what the, the Ku- Kuwaiti it reminds me of like American country music. It's clean. You've got the men are strict. You sing it straight, you clap straight. Hocket, it's clean Hocket, um and they'll say the Bahraini style and you can musicians will say you can transcribe that with maybe even for orchestra because it's so clean they keep it pure and they don't embellish a lot and add a lot of ornamentation and things and it but it depends on the genre and the piece but some people say the Bahrainis might embellish more and add more ornamentation and things but it it depends on who you're talking to but Definitely from um, these sister states and in my, in my book and even here, you know, I unite them from Kuwait. You can see on the map. I don't know these uh, pink areas mm-hmm. from Kuwait, Eastern Saudi Arabia, Khatif, Bahrain and Qatar all share a sea tradition, a sea song tradition. And I've been in the diwaniyas in Kuwait, the meeting places and musicians from all these countries have been there and they could all sing the songs together, even though they didn't rehearse or anything. They could jump right in. But I've also been there when uh, some musicians from the Emirates have been there, and they don't know the songs. didn't know the songs.
0: So here's a here's a, a question: If there are a sort of rhythmic patterns and and lyrical ornaments and sort of uh, melodic ornaments that dictate these the genre, has any of it um, trickled into popular music the way maybe you know? Um, you know work songs from the african-american slave uh sort of experience found its way into the blues which found its way into rhythm and blues and popular music in those ways is there any evidence of that or any sort of a, a,
1: thousand, percent. a thousand percent when collegiate pop music was being invented in the late 60s and early 70s so this is um an oral tradition and this is folk music and it's performed by the community it's an oral tradition when you add technology in any culture in the United States or anywhere, uh, like a recording techniques, the radio, a microphone, yeah. you shift. We did a huge shift in the United States. Um, the whole nature of that music, yeah. you know, from singing without a microphone to with a microphone, that's the end of opera, right? You don't need a microphone. With people saying classical opera like that because they have no mic, they could fill that hall. So it, it impacts the art and the culture. Well, in the Gulf region, when the oil wealth came, they were able to have radio stations and TV stations and all these kind of things, and the death of these, these groups. Um, so with that, and Kuwait was going through a movement where they wanted to be modern right? in the 70s, and Egypt was super cold, and everything going on in Egypt. So Egypt kind of provides that model for the peninsula in the 70s. Uh, and what they decide to do is um, come up with their own national music, but be modern. So how do you do that? Number one, you keep the rhythms. You take the rhythms from the peninsula, the Gulf, and you keep the dialect, the collegiate dialect. And, and to this day, if North Africans want to sing songs from, you know, want to get into this market, they have to add that little dialect. In the old days, in the 70s and 80s, it was very specific—a Saudi and Nejdi dialect, different than a Kuwaiti and a Bahraini, and so forth. Now it's starting to blur, and they call that "white language" because they're trying to hit a the market. They don't want that song to be too Kuwaiti or too Saudi, so they they take out words, you know, Shlonek or whatever, you know. They're not going to include two words that are too specific to Kuwaiti, yeah, yeah, so that they can have a bigger market. It, it, it's kind of bad in a sense; that waters it down. Now, the heavens, you listen to collegi pop and there's Latino rhythms, and there's a lot of stuff has gone by the wayside. But for the longest time, that was there were two things. You got to kind of keep our rhythms because the rhythms are really fascinating in the peninsula and the dialect.
0: In in terms of just like uh, for the musicians on the call, what are the time signatures? I mean, are they (laughs) completely different? Each each, uh, song is. Are they polyrhythmic? Like, how, how should yeah, we think I, about this stuff?
1: Yeah, I would. It's not really the meter so much. It's the polyrhythm. It's the polyrhythm okay. that really gives this music its punch. And even um, in Egypt, you know, Egypt has some fantastic musicians in the 70s and 80s. Famous uh, Gulf people would record in Egypt, and they say, "Bring, bring the drummers, though. We can play everything else, but bring the drummers from the, the Dosri or the drummer jam from the peninsula," because of those polyrhythms. Um, you know, polyrhythm, so it feels as if one person's in duple and the other one is in triple and, it, and the beat bounces. You know, it comes from Africa. A lot of African slaves are in um, the, the region long ago, and they no doubt help color the sounds and so forth. Not to say a lot of this is an indigenous, because it is. But, um, yeah, so so it's better to think of it as that polyrhythm. Even as something you think is simple, like Arda, the folk, the sword bands yeah. in Saudi Arabia has those polyrhythms that make it jump and make it kind of really interesting
0: yeah i wonder if um at the end of at the end of this discussion before we switch into the quick i a i'm going to pull up some of the the clips from the soundcloud but let's go into talking about the your book that came out in 2015 um uh music and traditions of the rape Peninsula, um, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain, and Qatar is the name. Um, and for the people listening who can't see the screen, I was struck by um, the structure of the book, right? There's two parts to it. Um, the first is the Nejd and the upper Gulf region, the second is the Hejaz and the southwest Gulf, Gulf region. So I'd like to talk about the structure of the book, but before I do, um, in the introduction of the book, you say um, that you were not seeking to write an academic research that concentrates on processes and values with Western anthropological perspective, rather um, to introduce Arabian Peninsula music, arts, and locate them in a historical and social context. Why make that distinction? What, what did you mean by that? How did that sort of guide your process? Um, yeah, it seemed quite intentional. Why?
1: That's a great question because my book's peer reviewed, right? So I had to go out to a lot of scholars, and because it's non-Western, it went to ethnomusicologists. And ethnomusicologists are like, "Why aren't you talking about you know social structure and gender roles?" And then, and I thought because I wrote it because this book was from handouts I would give my students in class. I would do my field work and I write things up, and then go back and and hand them to my class, and which was great because not only was I constantly peer reviewed by the musicians I was with, but the the students would take the work back to grandma and say my professor said this and grandma would say that's not right that grandma's from the tribes and grandma comes, sometimes grandma's wrong She just because we would talk about it she'd come in they'd come in i had parents in the class everything um but sometimes grandma was right so it made me it tightened up my research and my writing um mm. a great deal so uh the, this started as handouts, and because ethnomusicologists are reading it and asking why I'm taking this approach, I thought, because it's not for the foreign, the Western ethnomusicologists, it's for my, the people in front of me. It's for the people that grab me and say, please, you know, it, we know it's dying. We know it's, it's gone, you know, and to have a value system. I want you, you kids to know the best, learn the best the best songs that there are because we have, we don't have much time, you know, Okay, I can't, we can't put every song in the world in, in there. Let's try to find the gems or people in the community feel are gems and things like this. So have a musicological approach to a non-Western music. That was the goal.
0: Very cool. Um, this is something that we started talking um, about earlier, but I think it's worth um, jumping into um, again this map I just grabbed from online, um, it, it's from Columbia, a, a Columbia website, basically showing the broad areas of um, what we now call the Arabian Gulf. Um, and what's interesting about your book, and I'm curious if this was a revelation to you, was how, how many sort of different provincial styles there were and the dichotomy is the badu style versus the urban style the um you know the seafaring versus uh non-seafaring um how quickly did you realize these differences is it so obvious that every one of your students notices it or is this like a, a revelation
1: uh, well, sometimes, sometimes it, some things are obvious, but it was really, really difficult. And it's why it took me so long, you know, it really took 20 years of research because also the same terms are used and they mean different things in a different region. And you're know, like, wait, that's a Samri and that's a Samri. And then wait, samri also means a party and Samri also has a dance. And, and so it was so confusing and so difficult and it just took a long time to, to talking to all these great musicians and all these great informants to, to try to make sense and distill all this data. First, if you could find it, because, you know, music was haram. Music is sinful in 94, 98. You know, you, you weren't really allowed to talk about it. Professional musicians were arrested. In the middle of wedding parties, they would come in uh, and take them away. Just hear scuffling, you know, because men would play in the other room and pipe the music in. Men would be on the org. You hear wow. scuffling while well, they're arrested and taken away. <laughs> yeah, so it was really, really uh, difficult. But um, some things were clear right away when, when you would hear them, especially because I'm a musician, I was training and I would hear, oh, holy cow, over in Jeddah, you're playing the same rhythm I just heard in Riyadh, that tradition. And there's a connection there. So sometimes it was clear as day, you know, and then you could see dance steps that you're like, okay, this you're along the, uh Hajj, Travel routes, and along that hodge travel route, even though they're far away, ones in the Nedge, ones in the Jaws, we're seeing similar dance moves. Like people stop. They stopped over hundreds of years, and this, and and also this region's so old. I mean, it's been inhabited what second only to Africa. Have humans been in that area? And we have rock art where we can see 10,000, 20,000 years ago people doing similar dance steps to today similar drums to today. So it's been consistent. Certain things have been consistent, which is just really remarkable. And it breaks my heart that you know, there's instrument like the Simpsonia from the Red Sea area, at least 8,000 years, maybe longer, that instrument's been around. It's dying in front of us. It's dying right in front of our eyes. But it survived 8,000 years because of technology, these disruptions. Now with COVID, it's a whole nother disruption. It's impacting the music world. So, you know yeah
0: okay i want to talk a little bit about um some of the you just alluded to this now Um, a lot of your work focuses on dance as well um which was you know revelatory um for me i don't think of when i mean it's it's out of ignorance when i think of uh music from the khadij i think of you know I think of pro diving music, I don't think of um, there being accompanying dance dance moves or not dance moves, but dances. Um, again, just thinking about you as an educator, is this, um, are all of your sort of students who are young now, do they think of it, is, is dance a big part of the experience for them as well?
1: Uh, yeah, and we always put the two together in classes. The, the thing is, it's just like Latin music, the cha-cha, the rumba, but those are music genres, but they're dances, the tango, the there's a body movement that goes with those rhythmic modes and those genres. So this is just a similar, very similar to that, you know, or American French, we, a hoedown, a square dance, there's different types of square dances and that music accompanies that. So there's body movement, a uh, lots of body movement. And this is, these are folk arts. Not all the music I discuss is folk arts. Some music is urban music. You play oud and it's different. Um, if it's an urban music, you often won't get a dance. A folk art, and folk art's a little bit, you know, whatever. You're gonna have this body movement. So uh, yeah, people get up and they dance. It's, they, it's part of their community. Um, they'll sing in the, traditionally they would sing the songs themselves. Um, and it's a way to unite them. It's a method of brotherhood, solidarity, uh, companionship. It's, it's just a beautiful thing that, that communities were doing to, to uh, just show their, their brotherhood, their sisterhood.
0: Yeah, how much is this, um, so the, the two parts of the, the book, just uh, to restate, there's a um, North East and Southwest sort of groupings. Um what about just uh, this is, again a basic question what about the other two parts of the, the the other two quadrants? what's going on in those places?
1: okay well the, the music is kind of the communities, the cultures, the music is kind of uh, based on geographic um, uh, limitations or locations because Bedouin traveled and they let's take the Ne. Nanj- the tribes from the Central Arabia were wandering around the camels and looking for water during different seasons and so forth. So those folks could travel to the Gulf states and they could get in pretty, but when you got down near the empty Quarter, there's not much room to get into the Emirates. It's one of the reasons that we don't see a similar cultural traditions in the Emirates that you'll find in the upper Gulf states because tribes just didn't migrate into there to the same extent that they did to the other regions. So certain names of tribes you'll find more to the uh, Central Arabia and the East. Yeah. And, uh, and then when you get a little north Northern, like tribes, and we have gone back thousands of years, but like for instance, Northern tribes play instruments like a rababa. Traditionally, Southern tribes don't play rababa; It's not part of their, it's like a fiddle. Actually, I think there's one behind me on the wall. I mean, next to the flower, there's a rababa. It's a single string um, violin. Um, so, that that's true. So that's also another thing to consider, you know. And then the biggest um, division you're gonna find with music and culture are those Hejaz mountain chains. There's a huge mountain chain that runs from Jordan, you know, down to the Yemen. And because physically it was hard to cross. And if you're a Bedouin tribe, there was no reason for you to take camels over there all the time, unless you were going trade or something like that. So we do see that the music in the Hejaz and the Janubi that along the coast there, has many more similarities than you have across the mountains. Later, when radio is invented, radio stations from Clayton and Edge, the, the radio waves could get back and forth between those regions, but they didn't cross the mountains. So, even up until the 70s and 80s, you still kind of had this distinguishing mark, this physical land um, barrier. Um, so, and, and then when you get south of Taya, that's when you start to get Janubi. The music's a little different there, south of Taya, than it is north of Taya
0: interesting okay cool um the other last thing uh i want to talk about is um there's a really great lecture that you've given on on youtube about the music and dance in mecca which was really really surprising to me what is um unique about the stuff that's coming out of or that came out of mecca
1: that's a fascinating music it's called dana and that's been part of the hijaz for oh heavens knows you know i'm sure thousands of years because we know at least you know, way into the 1800s and there's sources that indicate long before that. Um, it's an it's an urban music, because these are cities, these are big cities so it's not going to be like the folk group let's all link arms and sing these folk songs and folk dances that you get in more rural communities. But, you know, Mecca was the musical center of the Arab world, you know, for a long time, like people think of Baghdad or, or Cairo, but even before that, you, you know, we have early sources from the Middle Ages discussing Mecca, the great Mecca musicians. So this is an urban music. And when I say urban music, it means it uses oud and makam, makamat, as opposed to some folk music. In, we normally don't identify it like that because the amphibus, the musical range is so narrow that it's it doesn't have that level of musical complexity that you get in city centers and urban centers. But the arts that come out of Mecca, and there are many different uh, rhythmic modes for different types of these dana songs. It's a category. Women sing them, men sing them. Um, yeah,
0: can I play one of them from the the video?
1: Yeah, I'm sure. If I have one up there, sure.
0: Yeah, I think I have one queued up. Let me see if it's uh it's still up there. Okay. Oh,
1: okay.
0: Here we go. Let's see if all right. This will this will show up in a second in the meantime let's look let's listen to some of the 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 soundcloud um the soundcloud recordings that i I highly um i highly encourage folks to check out those recordings so these are um five of the um or four of the the references that you have in your book so walk us through what these, what these are, uh, just so we're gonna to listen to a little bit of them, but.
1: Uh, the Kutwa, I don't know if you start, but Kutwa. Kutwa step, it's a step dance they do in the Asir in the Southwest of Saudi Arabia. And every tribe and every region has their own little take on it. You know, it's, it's like, you're really proud of it. You know, certain people are proud of a certain dish they make and our region does it. And, and it's a line dance with a really interesting step and I recorded this at a women's wedding party um, uh, just, you know, to get a live recording of it, it was, it was the singer's name was Aisha, you know, we never wanted to put names because in those days, or when I made the recordings, you, you know, we, these people, a young woman that's singing publicly, it might embarrass her family later and things like that. But. Um, yeah, so this is the music kutwa and during this, the women were out dancing it in two lines. It's almost like a little competition. Anytime you have anything related to tribes or the Bedouin, you'll tend to have these two lines and they compete. Our line's better than your line. You know? Yeah, so it's kind of fun. It's a good spirit.
0: Okay, here we go. So it was a problem with my sharing. So let me let me play a little bit of this, and then we will go into the questions. Can you hear that? So that's defined um by the the rhythmic pattern and the sort of the venue right
1: yeah the rhythmic mode it can be inside outside yeah
0: okay and where is that from like what yes. are the
1: the southwest the asir it was near abha i was near Amha. i used to okay. live down there. i lived down there too in years ago.
0: just out here curiosity how many recordings are there of this type of stuff of like in, in particular is there are there oh. tons of them
1: well, everybody makes everybody makes cassettes. Like, um, this is my band, you know. And you want to hire yeah. me for your wedding? Here's my cassette. Oh, there's just floating around everywhere. And then okay. the in the you know, even today. Yeah.
0: Okay, let's listen to this one. Is this a is this okay to listen to this one?
1: Yeah, it should be Dosuri, South of Riyadh.
0: Okay, let's listen to it. Yeah, it sounds so African compared to it's so funny comparing it to music that you know in Syria and Iraq, it's, it's totally different.
1: Because Wadi Kawasser had it's a lot it a lot of palm grows, so they had a lot of African slaves there, and it's the heart of drumming in the in the Nej. Yeah. And that okay. rhythmic mode, you know, you find it everywhere. In the Hejaz, they call it Kobeiti. It's similar to a rhythmic mode kobati. And like Delkeese has a big song a few years out called Dag Dad, Dad kobaiti, the, the rhythm, And one mm-hmm. thing, whenever you hear that rhythm, you'll see arms come. The men dance with, or even women with their arms. Every time I hear Dosri, I tell my students, put your Dosri arms out. Right. <laughs> but it's a fun way of dancing. That's why the picture of the little boy with his arms.
0: So. He has his, his arms out. Okay, let's listen to this one, and then we're going to move on. Uh, between these two, which one should we listen to
1: next? Uh, best is Iraq uh, Bahrain, yeah, it's okay. It's got uh, uh, Iraqi roots, but yeah. Okay. As-salam
0: So um, if you were to hear that without seeing the the clip, do you immediately recognize that as being Bahraini?
1: No, no, I don't because um, best is kind of a not, it's not as prevalent, it's a prevalent music that I I dealt with every day. Um, And it's, see in Iraq, they have these huge suites and at the end they have a piece called Pesta and it just means a lighthearted, you know, refrain song, and it, it got immigrated to Bahrain and to Kuwait, we do it a little bit, and um, altered a little bit, but it's not like one of the main genres, so I would have to, no, but sea songs, yes, like a work song between Bahrain and Kuwait, yes, the best. Um, I okay,
0: cool. cool. Okay, there are questions in the chat, so we're going to do this quick Q&A just to transition, and then we will open it up to the chat. And we have three questions so far. If there are any other ones, please add them in too. Okay, the first one, what are you reading or watching right now?
1: You know, I'm reading a book, sort of an uh, audio book, uh, Blood and Oil. It's about, uh, I, I'm not sure I recommend it. it. It's, you know, some reporters talk to consultants and others who were working on Vision 2030 uh, with the mm. Saudis. And it's, I think I fi- I'm finding it a little bit biased, so I guess I should because miss the subtitles, like, you know, the quest for power or something like this. But, um, and I worked for the Saudi government, you know, for over a year and um, I wanted to see the perspective of, of their perspective versus my own perspective. And well, so kind of interesting, but I'm not sure I recommend it.
0: Okay. Um... Next is, who would you love to shadow for a day past or
1: present? Well, normally somebody that's, you know, maneuvering through life pretty well and and been successful. But now that we've had this massive disruption with COVID, I'm not sure who's, it's only been a year, who's gonna be successful and how it's gonna come out on the other end, you know? So it's like we're starting at zero. So if I could choose anybody, I would just choose you know the, the prophet Muhammad, Jesus. You know, let me follow them for a day, and um, let's see if if we we kept any any of the main ideas and survived all that time. So somebody that had an impact for so many thousands of years. You know, I think I'd grab that person.
0: Yeah, can't go wrong. Okay, what do people most misunderstand about your work?
1: a lot of people think it's easier than it is. It's easier to do than it is. And I'll have grad students come down and say, I'm just going to go in there or, or local folks, and they end up getting frustrated and giving up. And so I I just, you know, one reason I wrote my book was to make a foundation, take that material and go deeper. You look at the United States, we have 1,800 um, schools of colleges of music, higher institutions, and each one of them has a music library and there's shelves and shelves on Beethoven and Mozart. And here we have not, nothing on shelves, you know, when we're talking about some of this peninsula music, there, there's no not enough research and books. So don't give up, start slow. And, and, and my advice is to check your sources. You'll be at a, an event and you'll be doing fieldwork, and the guy next to you tell you one thing, he'll tell you that's a Samari and it's not, it's a Kamari. To so check because people are getting this information, but it's not just in this region. The other day, my student, I said, "Put up a song that you really like that represents you online," and the kid wrote, "I really love this song by Bob Marley." And he puts a YouTube video, and I listen, and I said, that, "That's not Bob Marley. That's Bobby McFerrin." And, but the YouTube video says Bob Marley and a picture of Bob Marley, and so now this young man and all his people all over the world think that song's by Bob Marley. So the misinformation on the internet, just on the basic level is really disturbing. And in the peninsula, when you get to peninsula arts, another student, she said, I read a great article about this old Kuwaiti song and the words are by a poet from the middle ages. And it's in this article. And so I'm gonna do my project on it. And I said, fine. She went to the national museum, dug deep, deep and said, that reporter's wrong. That song wasn't written by that poet. But so the information in the newspaper is wrong, and that just taught a whole community of people. It took a student to go spend you know, three days in a library to dig it up to get the truth. So I just, you know, the point is that this work is hard and it's and that don't give up, but you know, you have to give effort to find the real truth.
0: In the, in the timeless words of Bob Marley, don't worry, be happy, just work. <laughs>
1: That's the song, you know, you've seen it.
0: <laughs> okay. Whose work do you admire or are inspired by? Uh,
1: there's a Saudi anthropologist, Sad Al-Sawayan. He's elder, elderly now, and he's way ahead of his time. You know, he went to, I think, USC in the 70s and came and did all kind of field work, anthropological fieldwork. And he was from with a really religiously strict place north of Riyadh, and did all kind of field recordings and wrote really interesting books. And, and I... I feel bad for him, because now people are starting to be interested in him, but he, his health is failing and he's getting older. But what he did, he really deserves a lot of credit well ahead, ahead of his time.
0: Fantastic. Okay, we have four questions in the chat. We're going to start with Zeno.
1: Hi, thank you so much for such a great presentation. My question is, to what extent did being a female limit your access to these male-dominated spaces? And could you also say that as a foreigner, you had more access than Arab women? Absolutely. That's a great question. Absolutely. In fact, back in the 90s, they would say, I could go to the women's side of the house. The houses were divided like in Saudi. I could go on the women's side of the house, hang out with the women, and I get up and go over to the men's side of the house. Because they said, well, you're in Westerns. So you're not really like a woman like our women. You're kind of like different. So it, 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 there's no way a man could have gone into these women events that I went into in Saudi or Kuwait or a lot of these regions. So being a woman certainly helped me with studying women's music. But, and being foreign, being American, because I'm not part of the tribes. So I don't have to worry about my you know, reputation or anything like this. It allowed me to go going with the rimbooth men. And the men would say, you know, we, why, you know, I say, why are you guys letting me in here? Because we think it's interesting. And also we want to report our heritage. you know, so it helped me a great deal. And while a person from the region would have encountered many more um, difficulties, even people that want to, if a Kuwaiti wants to go into Bahrain, they're like, what are you doing? Why are you down here? What are you doing? You know, a little suspicious, you know, but if, because if, I'm an American, I'm so far away. It's so weird. I, I would meet, Bedouin tribes, like out, I remember down there, the empty corridor, just stopping people that live in tents, no really poor people that have nothing. And the women had never seen anybody that looks like me and the children would touch me and stuff. And the, um, and they'd say, where are you from? And I'd say America. And they'd never heard of it. So they go, you Syrian? You must be Syrian. And after a while, I was like, yeah, I'm from Syria. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's as wacky as you're going to get in Syria. So I'll take it.
0: Yeah. You should have had the nickname uh, Lisa Chemi. Yeah, that's
1: right.
0: Um, OK, next. that's a great question, Zaina. Thanks so much. Neil, you're up next.
2: Uh, thank you. Hi. Um, hello, Lisa. Uh, this is Neil van der Linden from Amsterdam. We met before. Um, I reviewed your book, by the way, for the National, as you rem- might remember. Uh, I have a question about, uh, as you say, uh, so few uh, groups remain. Um, I'm assumed that everybody knows about Ganao and Morocco on the other side of the Arab world, where, through partly because of the success with tourists, but also through fusion, serious fusion with Faro Sanders, Marcus Miller, um, uh, Omar Sosa, etc. Uh, centered party around uh, the festival of Esawira, uh, Genawa is able to survive. Is that uh, uh, something which could be um, performed with the Khaliji music as well, or would it, uh, on the other side, also endanger the nature of the music? Would you have an idea if uh, if such if such a thing would be feasible?
1: Uh, hi, Neil. First, great to see you. Of course, yes, I remember you.
2: Okay, good. Thank you.
1: <laughs> well, lovely to see you, and that year. you hi, look yeah. like you well. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know what? You no, know, I just don't know much about Moroccan music or the whole situation. But I mean that they are trying to keep groups alive, but they're creating new ones. I just meant the ones whose you could trace their ancestors back to the boats. But there are new groups who don't who have members who don't really come from the old providing traditions. And they are still singing songs. There's a, there's a new band in Kuwait, the Mass Band. Um, that's a C band, but I don't consider them part of that old 10, the big 10. But um, yeah, there are some things, that it's not, I'm a little disappointed. It hasn't picked up to the extent I would have hoped, you know, in the Gulf. And because Kuwait really loves music. Kuwait is a, is a, government's always been kind of supportive of the arts, but, um, I
2: don't know. I'm sorry, I don't have a better answer. No, No, uh, for instance, Bill Braggen, who's also online, uh, might be able to tell you that recently at New York University, uh, they did a fusion uh, with a a Kuwaiti musician, a South African musician, and it worked very well. Uh, That could be a path. Uh, People would be worried that by fusion, you um, corrupt the... Authenticity of the music, but on the other hand, like uh, it was proven in Essaouira, uh, it can also help uh, foreign interest from serious musicians can help uh, local musicians to get more self-conscious, self-awareness, self uh, what's called uh, self-confidence, which might uh, create new ways, but also helps the to uh, the, the old ways to survive and get an international interest.
1: This is true. In a few years, we at the university, we had a, we worked with the British Council and they brought in a, a Scottish or Irish folk band and we put them together with Kuwaiti musicians and they created some kind of a fusion sound. We had a CD called The Flavors of Sound. And I, it was really interesting. And it really, you know, to the, mix these two types of music because he had six, eight rhythms coming from this Scotch Irish sound to this. Um, but then I was sitting in the audience and they did a, a fam, famous song called uh, Bushia, a famous Kuwaiti salmon song. And I'm in the audience was some older Kuwaiti women and they were like you know ruinous song. Yeah. You know, they, were,
2: like, right.
1: they don't like it. But okay. you know, or that essence, that Genocide cloud, you know. Okay.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Neil. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Um, Peter's up next.
1: Uh-huh. Hi Lisa, thanks for doing this talk. Um, my question was originally about the harmonic structures um, within some of this music, but I actually want to change um, and ask a little bit about um, the industry and like the economic structures that exist in Kuwait and other nations um, that support this music and the dissemination nationally and outside of the countries. Um. Uh- well, there's different types of music, right? So we have art music, kind of sophisticated music, like the soul, but we have the folk songs, then you have this new collegiate pop. Um, what's going on with the industry? Wow, you know, it's the same thing in the Western world. Now with the, there's no, no live performances, right? And the music schools are kind of shut down. And so I don't know what's going to happen with the industry into the future. Um, in the popular commercial music of the region, you've got kids in their bedrooms, right, laying tracks, just like you do anywhere anywhere else. Um, part of the problem is, this: you know, the software is tonal, not microtonal. And or even if it weren't, they wouldn't, the, the young, some of the young people engaged in it would reject it anyway. I mean, certain organizations, NBC is doing well. Um, they're finding ways. yeah, you know, But... You, you know what's going to happen with the industry, whether it's in Saudi Arabia or the Gulf States. I I don't know. I mean, I know the Saudis really want it to succeed, but they're so detached from that old heritage because it's not taught in the schools. So what's going to come out? It it might just be like a Western. We, we you know, I remember somebody said to me, um, "Hey, maybe we can have K-pop," and then which maybe they can, but you kind of get really far away from what's unique about the region right so I, I, i'm sorry i can't speak more about the market and the industry because i'm not i really don't know what's going to come forward in the future
0: okay um thanks peter we have a question from May, but just uh, to tag on to that lisa i'm curious are your students mostly musicians are they are are they folks who are interested in playing this music as well? Do they have band open and they're sampling it and they're trying to make, you know, Bachata style music for Kuwait, like modern, <laughs> the same way Bachata was a folk uh, genre, and now it's very much a pop
1: genre. Uh, well, we're, we're a liberal arts college, so we teach all different types of students and some are serious and they wanna go forward. We've had students go on to graduate school and become professors themselves, but we don't have a major because of the nature of the region, it's complicated. But So I teach a variety of students, but I teach upper level. So normally to get into my class, you have to kind of pass an interview. You have to have a basic knowledge. So um, some people want to go into, a lot of people are media, common media, and they want to use traditional music in their products later in their life. And um, so there's a great variety. A lot of business majors, and, and some are really serious musicians.
2: So it just depends.
0: Great. Okay, we have three questions. We're going to try to get through all of them. May, Mustafa, and Bill. May?
2: Yes, hi. Thank you so much for this presentation. I really enjoyed it. Um, my question actually starts with a quote by Nina Simone. Um, she once said that an artist's duty is to reflect the times. So I am um, just wanted to see what do you think of this quote, and do you think it's relevant to your profession as a musicologist? Thank
1: you. Absolutely. That's great. It should reflect the times. But I'm also a historian, and... See, if you if you want to take a music like in, in America in Appalachia or something and make it modern and reflect the times, um, it's been around so long. It's been recorded. It's been documented. People have written about it. You can come and take. I mean, I don't. The, they, there's also the issue of national identity, and to say that Saudi doesn't have a national identity tied to its music, I don't. I don't know. It does. It's it does. And then sometimes the people know this music, but they just. They just don't know how to talk about it or identify it. So yes, art should reflect the times. And so if, but there's also this concept of globalization is really colonization. And so a big powerful country with a big market can crush a country that hasn't developed or saved its own heritage yet. And that's probably my biggest concern that, that this is it's not like oh we're all God's children let's just share it's like big big mammoth capitalism might come and smush little baby heritage that hasn't been started yet
0: thanks May uh mustafa hi uh thank you for the presentation uh my question was um i mean how often are people surprised uh to learn about the heterogeneity in the arabian peninsula i mean i i grew up in in uh, Jeddah, and since i moved to the States, i always noticed people like just grouping all the peninsula in, in, at one, you know, and like, knowing like there's a lot of, you know, heterogeneity within the region.
1: I'm sorry, Mustafa, knowing that there's a lot of what? what
0: heterogeneity, uh, like a, a lot of different groups and different, you know, traditions in music. music.
1: Um, yeah, Saudi Arabia is huge. The rain Peninsula is huge. It's like right. one, one-third the size of the United States is like from the Mississippi West, and there's a lot of different peoples since... And, you know, we always say people live in boxes. Sometimes they don't know about each other, what this tribe was doing and that group is doing. Um, yeah. So I think that is one thing that people will say, or even my students or anybody I encounter like, wow, I didn't understand. It was so diverse and so different. And it's one thing th- that's kind of good about, you know, being American. I remember working with the ministry and stuff and saying, Look, you know, people in Texas are not like people in New York. You know they're all from the same you got to kind of it's good to respect these different these differences but also unite and unite as a country but definitely respect don't if you start forcing new york on texas it's not going to work or vice versa you know
0: absolutely okay um bill you want to take us away yeah thank you so much mikey and uh, thank you lisa for the presentation uh, i am just i'm curious just about definitions i know the um uh, One of the recordings that you showed early in the presentation spoke about art song of the sea and and you just recently made a reference to art song and i'm just wondering within this context, because so much of the music is functional, Uh, and I've got, I guess, a very sort of Western idea of sort of art song referring to a certain kind of rarefied classical music that is non functional. So I'm just curious as what does that mean for you as you're using that term? What kind of how does that fit into this specific context?
1: But great question, exactly what you said. You, you, it's non-functional, it's music for music's sake. It's performed in a diwaniya at a, at a private gathering uh, like so. is in Kuwait. It's, um, it tends to use oud or or something where you have to learn to play makamat makam, an instrument that can play melodic tones as opposed to almost everything else, like a great deal of the other music, the folk music is just drums, drums or hand claps. But when you start to bring in that melodic instrument and then you, there are not dances associated with most of the genres that identify as or I categorize as, as art songs. So it's it's music for music's sake, and even those dance songs, you know, they don't have specific dances that go with them.
0: Okay, um, well, we just crossed the hour, um, and we had some great questions, Lisa. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, for those of you who are interested in engaging with Lisa's work, you can find her uh, website online. Um, and there's a, I highly recommend going to the SoundCloud, checking out some of the recordings, going to the website. You can see these two really beautiful booklets that accompany uh, the two projects related to Kuwait. Um, and you can check out the book online. A lot of really, really good stuff. If you uh, saw the link in the chat about feedback, please give us feedback on today's event. If you'd like to support our work and keep us going and growing, go to patreon.com and support our work there. And check out our upcoming events. We have a really, really good event this Saturday. Uh, it's our first event featuring high school students for really adorably nerdy students from the American School of Palestine are going to be giving community presentations from in Ramallah. It's going to be really, really good. So check that out. Um, and Lisa, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Mikey. Very appreciate it.
0: Okay, everybody. Have a good day or night, wherever you are. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We have new episodes coming every single week, Make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can find us at afikra.com for information about all upcoming events. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. See you next time and
1: stay curious.